Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. My guest this week is my friend and colleague, Dr. Ian Llewellyn Nash. Ian and I met when I was writing Cultivate, my first book, and it, he was the inspiration around the outer ring of the model that focuses on how relationships form the context, the communication, and the culture. So for that, Ian, I owe you a debt of gratitude. Um, Ian is uh, an educator and is passionate on the topics of emotional intelligence, NLP, and DISC, and works within the health sector within the UK, helping uh, nurses and nursing practitioners to gain those skills and knowledge of emotional intelligence. So, Ian, welcome to People First. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation, but as with every episode, it always starts with the origin story, because our leadership journeys that bring us to this point today and People First are usually not the straight line from A to B. So, going back to primary school when you were a wee lad and the teacher asked you, what did you want to be when you grew up? What was your answer? Right. Well, my my very first response to that question in primary school was, I wanted to be a motorcycle policeman. Ooh, okay. Why? Go on, tell me more. <laughs> I, 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 I've gone back to that question many, many times. Why, why did I say that? Um, I... I I think there was a certain familiarity with motorbikes in the place where I grew up, which was Northern Ireland. We had a lot of people who used to go across to the Isle of Man for the, mm -hmm. the yearly motorbike races. Um, so it was very much a part of my uh, cultural context and, and, and upbringing living in Northern Ireland, however, during the time of what is referred to as the Troubles. Um, there was a lot of police activity, so there was a sort of combination of motorbikes, um, pleasure, police purpose. Um, mm -hmm. In my very, very young, naive-type mind, it was very, very quickly... Um, pushed to one side when I happened to share my my childhood um, ideals with my mother because mm -hmm. she reminded me of one night we were driving into town and we passed a motorcycle accident. Yikes. Um, yeah. Which was very traumatic. Um, so she was very, very insistent in... Only be. can be mm -hmm. um, that that was not going to happen. Um, it didn't happen, but I still have the urge to get on a motorbike. So, so I have only been on, there are two memorable motorbike stories that I'm going to share with you. One is on the back of a, mo a motorbike. This was my first ride, and this is as an adult, going up the A1 and lorries thundering past us. So for those from the US listening, they're going, I don't, I don't understand. But imagine um, 
yeah, an interstate, but narrow two lane interstate with big trucks going past. I remember screaming, being terrified. And the other iconic experience was on the back of a Harley Davidson in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, Colorado, um, where I was working with a gold mining client. And one of the participants just took me out just to see the scenery. But there I was. And I remember thinking, little old me riding on the back of a Harley Davidson in Nevada, Colorado, and uh, not Nevada, Colorado, Nevada, uh, the USA, who would have ever thunk? So those are the two. And much like you, I like the idea of a motorbike, but it's all the other idiots on the road that would have me more concerned than, than so, no. So your mother's a wise woman. <laughs> yes, she was. She yeah. was. So what was the pivot point? So you didn't get to be the motorcycle policeman. Um, so what was the pivot that brought you here into having a passion and a deep knowledge and understanding of emotional intelligence? I guess it, it, it's a little bit hazy to, to be honest, uh, Maura, but I, I guess it was when I was uh, working as a nurse, um, I won't say climbing up the, the greasy pole, um, but as I advanced within my nursing career from a bedside nurse to a um, managerial nurse running the coronary care unit that, that I worked in, my, my focus obviously began to shift in terms of um, bedside nursing to having a, re a responsibility for the nurses that worked with me. <laughs> And, and probably initially, I was out of my depth. I, I didn't really comprehend relationships with, with other people, how to manage people, how to move them in a certain direction. Um, that was something I had to learn very much on the hoof. And um, in hindsight, probably successfully, we achieved a lot. It was quite a dynamic coronary care unit, and we brought in a lot of um, stuff that was innovative, um, accelerating patient care in terms of um, cardiac um, management. For me, I, I guess one of the important learning points was recognizing that I, I had reached a, a glass ceiling in that context. And that um, for me as an individual, I couldn't grow anymore unless I went somewhere else. But also recognizing, um, particularly in that context, um, in, in specialist nursing units, ITU, CCU, um, A&E environments, unless the person above you marries, moves, mm -hmm. wins the lottery, mm -hmm. etc., you get stuck. Yeah. Um, and, and having experienced that myself when I was a junior nurse and not being able to progress, I was very conscious that I was holding people back as well who I knew had the capacity and the capability and the desire to um, progress within the unit. So I chose to took 12 months, 12 months, I'm going to leave and I will get them ready. So put mm -hmm. everything. Then I moved into nurse education per se, uh, and particularly took up leadership 
clinical mm -hmm. teacher um, teaching. And I would very often, as part of that um, teaching portfolio, um, say to students in terms of, of mentoring, well, for me, I think you need three types of mentoring relationships. Okay, what are those? One, one where you have somebody who is ahead of you, who shows you the way. Mm -hmm. One is a mentoring relationship who shares the journey with you. Hmm. And thirdly, a mentoring relationship where you are mentoring another person and developing them. Okay. So in, in various lectures I was delivering, I would talk about this, and I began to see that one or two people would come back to me. Ian, you've talked about having mentors and so forth in your life and helping you develop. Would you be my mentor? Oh. I thought, oh, <laughs> I wasn't really expecting that. Um, so for me, the, the passion sort of emerged out of that very um, organic um, context where um, I followed my heart um, mm -hmm. as well as my head. Um, and I, I, I guess for me, it, it all mushroomed from there. And that took me into the whole area of emotional intelligence. And the rest, they say, is it's history. Still history. <laughs> it's history in the making, though. We're on the cutting yeah. edge of the history of the making. And it's interesting because I know that your PhD research was a deep dive into emotional intelligence. And I know you've been quoted as saying that emotional intelligence has the Marmite effect. You yeah. either love it or hate it. And NLP goes alongside emotional intelligence. But for those who are listening, who may not be familiar with the terms, can you help us understand emotional intelligence, NLP, and where are they the same or different? Okay. Um, emotional intelligence, I mean, emotional intelligence has been around for, in, in terms of in-your-face awareness, probably for about ooh, 40 years now. We we track first recollections back to ooh, maybe maybe 1966. Very very interesting. Um, first time that the phrase was used it was uh, it was a German um, researcher working with uh, women uh, postpartum who postpartum depression and, and and the context the use of the word emotional intelligence came out of her research where she was giving um ladies in this situation lsd to manage their postnatal depression interesting of course but mm -hmm. that, 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 that's one of its its origins emotional intelligence there are a number of definitions but in its simplest form it's about how I, as an individual, become aware of my emotions. I become aware of your emotions and how I can use those emotions to, to actually make better decisions, cope with life, um, influences my well-being, shapes my relationships with, with other um, people, particularly in the, in the corporate context, managing me, 
managing you in order to, to achieve um, outcomes. NLP um, has been connected with emotional intelligence because it's about that uh, inside development of who we are. NLP goes back to the early days of um, a couple of guys, Bandler and Grindler and Santa Cruz. Their, their passion um, was very much what makes the difference in experts? Why are they experts? Why are they so good at what they do? And in, in, in the origins of NLP, they were particularly interested in, in Virginia um, Satter, Milton Erickson. What made them so, so excellent at what they did? But more important, arguably, mm -hmm. if they could do it, could we actually take their skills and teach someone else mm -hmm. to do it. Um, and, and that was the origin of NLP. Um, if we want to take the letters NLP, it's about how we think. Um, L, it's about language, how we communicate primarily with ourselves. And the way we think and the way we talk to ourselves will have a practical application in terms of how we show up in the world how we are programmed right and um long story short if the programming isn't helping us to achieve successful outcomes whatever success means to an individual then just as you would tweak away at the the program for this uh this mm -hmm. conversation then the, the premise of NLP is we can help change, ameliorate the internal programs to change the internal dialogue, to change the outcomes. So neuro-linguistic neuro programming. Yeah. Most of the people involved in NLP have a bit of a, oh, I hate the term. I don't like the way it's just, I don't like the moniker now. Yeah, you know, um, our definitions, it's, you know, um, how, how individuals achieve success um, by working with their internal programs. Um, I, I, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I like the way you described it there because it, it helped me to understand, obviously, again, emotional intelligence starts with me and yeah. what am I feeling and why? And then making an informed choice as to how am I going to use that to your point to be successful going forward, whether it's the decision, it's the conversation that you and I are having, whatever, versus being a victim and reactive to it yeah. and potentially inflaming the situation or you know, having a less than successful experience. And it was interesting, I was looking at some of uh, the research and your talks from the Open University where you are teaching these topics, and you cited some other researchers that were saying that within the nursing curriculum and the healthcare curriculum, emotional intelligence has tended to be overlooked, which I find fascinating, partly because there's that... Um, unconscious bias, well, nursing equates to caring and therefore emotional intelligence. So why do you think it has been such a neglected topic in years gone by? And why is it so important to all of us today? 
Um, well, start with the good points. Emotional intelligence is now becoming a much more um, proactive element of new nursing education curriculum. So, so it is in there. But historically, it wasn't in there because nursing education curriculum were based on very scientific reductionist curriculum. It was about doing. Mm -hmm. And it's about doing nursing. Um, I, I, I always tell the story of one of my study participants who was, while she was a student, she, she was brilliant, you know, in terms of the practical skills. You know, one of those nurses, if you were sick, you would want her simply because she knew what she was doing. But my, 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 my research was based on interviews with, with this group of nurses, followed them over a three-year period, um, once each year. And I remember in the first year talking to her, and I was, we, we got around to the question about friendship with um, nurses or relationships with patients, in terms of the therapeutic relationship. Um, and she astounded me um, when she, she effectively said, um, I don't want to be friends with patients. I don't want to be friends with any of my nurse colleagues. Hmm. Exactly. Hmm. That look was the look on my face. <laughs> well, I'll send her a copy of Cultivate. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, it's the Jeez. I'm sorry. Okay. You know. Mm -hmm. Um and I repeated the question. I said, oh. said, well, I don't live with them, I don't work with them. Why do I need to know about their life? Mm-hmm. Well, certain logic in there. Um and Oh, wow. Um, but she was very, very good. Um, caught up with her years two and three, and, and that whole element really hadn't changed. But one of the things that did emerge, which was one of the main themes from the research, was um, I, uh, I termed it the, the legacy of the kinsfolk memory. She had been brought up in a family who just did not. They didn't cuddle. Um, if something had happened to her in terms of her own health, her mother's response was, there's a bus hospital down the road. Walk it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Independence and, and that mm -hmm. type of thing, which there's a certain value too. But in terms of this caring relationship, it, 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 it just stood out like a, like a sore thumb. Um, it was important for... For, for me in terms of the relationship with the patient nurses had this um, emotional connection with their patients because they were sharing um, at times incredibly intimate journeys with their patients. Mm -hmm. um, the outcome of my research was, was essentially if, if we want to have effective, efficient nurses, then we need to have a nurses who are emotionally equipped, not simply um, cognitively or skills-based mm -hmm. um, efficient. And it's been a journey and we're getting there. 
I think given what's happening in the world today, it, I was thinking about a piece of research that was carried out by a UK company um, called JCA. Mm -hmm. They did a significant piece of research. They, they did a 10-year observation on emotional intelligence across a number of key sectors, healthcare, IT, accountancy, um, engineers. And they looked at the, the experience, the unfolding of emotional intelligence across those sectors between 2000 and 2010. And they, they came up with, with a number of significant findings. But the main one during that decade, um, whilst in general, the if you like, the group or the sector level of emotional intelligence essentially went like that, it dipped on three occasions during that decade. Okay. Those three occasions were related to financial crisis in the markets mm -hmm. where one might argue that if one is emotionally intelligent one's looking out for oneself and for other people and supporting them helping them promoting them making sure they're okay but on three occasions in the financial crisis that were hitting uk markets um similarly in the us um the level of emotional intelligence that was expressed dipped and people became incredibly individualistic. Hmm. I'm looking after myself. Yeah. I went back to that report because I was thinking about where we are now with COVID. Um, and if we look back, um, I can only really speak for, for the UK experience. Since March, one of the things that seems to be emerging everywhere is about this willingness to engage with uh, people in your community, support people in your community, doing shopping, visiting, um, etc., etc. And in the UK, we're experiencing what has been referred to as a, as a second wave of the mm -hmm. pandemic. Um, and it's interesting that in the second wave, we're not seeing as much of that community spirit as we were in the first wave. Mm. So it makes me think, it, it makes me think, have we come to a state of emotional exhaustion? where people have given out. But for me, the, the more interesting question is, was the emotional activity imposed rather than simply emerging from people? Because for me, that has always been the, uh, I don't know, in the UK, we, we have a phrase, the bugbear, you know, mm -hmm. When we look at the emotional intelligence throughout the decades, you know, it was seized upon by the business world, the HR world, particularly after Goldman wrote his, his books in 1995, 1996. And, and, and they saw it as something to be achieved. And arguably very much in the early days, emotional intelligence was a tick box mm -hmm. exercise. 
Um, I make that, expre that expression because for me, emotional intelligence, emotional wisdom is something that you are rather than something that you do. So taking that mindset, looking at what is happening in this sort of second wave of the pandemic, emotional exhaustion, the activity is depleting, arguably because no one is telling individuals, this is how you have to go and help people. And people, re mm -hmm. people are reverting to norm, arguably a bit like what happened in the financial crisis. We come to an, exhaust, an exhausted state and we're looking after ourselves again which I find interesting. Um, in the context of the corporate world, it's it, for me, the challenge is how we adjust to, to a COVID, COVID normative world, you know, um, is, is how we actually make what we do credible in terms of trust and in terms of care. Um, one of the guys I, I, I like reading over in, in England, Dr. Martin Newman, mm -hmm. um, he wrote a book, Emotional Capitalists. He was at a conference last year, year before, um, and, and he was making a statement that he was talking to, to leaders, um, C-suite, um, leadership level, and, and he came out of out with a comment. My my paraphrase, simply: employees want to know that you care for them. Mm -hmm. If they know that you care for them, they will produce for you. Very simplistic paraphrase, and. I think in terms of the corporate world at the moment, we're, we're, we're facing up to the challenge of what that actually means. Because when COVID came, it was the done thing to help your neighbor. Because we're kind. Mm -hmm. We're a corporate organization and we have a reputation to manage because, well, you know, company down the road, they're doing X, Y, and Z and they're providing hampers and so forth. Um, but I think we're now settling into a second phase where it has to be an organic experience rather than a um, forced experience. So it's interesting to watch and it's interesting to observe what does the emotionally intelligent organization look like mm -hmm. in this context. Um, and there is arguably this, this division between um, employees who perhaps are experiencing emotional labor where they have to pitch up, whether it's over a laptop or, you know, those who are able to go to work and they're, you know, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. everything's okay. the, the mask, yeah. Yeah, you know, and executives who are also having to operate for, at, at a different level with their own emotional labor because for the majority of them, how do, how do I keep this organization afloat? How do I actually pay salaries? How do I, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, particularly when arguably some of the, you know, furloughing, do we have to do that? Um, yeah. So there are two, for me, there are two types of emotional experiences going on on both sides, employee, um, employer, um, which is interesting to observe, which perhaps takes me back to the outer circle in, in Cultivate. It's about mm-hmm. it's about climate, it's about um, communication with people. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that 2020 has been both a leadership and emotional intelligence, emotional wisdom roller coaster ride um, that none of us particularly asked for uh, or wished on anyone. And I can remember early in the year going through the, um, uh, I described it as an emotional washing machine. You think about the 400 plus potential emotions that allegedly we can all experience. I'm British, so there's sarcasm. That might be it, actually. So there you go. Um, But anyway, I I felt them all and sometimes all on the same day. And it felt like all at the same moment. And it was destabilizing. And then to your point, we've settled into a routine that either is good habits or poor habits, like my commute bed to desk to bed. That's not healthy. So I've had to change that up. And I think we are... we are going to be experiencing in 2021 um, the predictable surprise of that emotional release and burden, both at the same time, impacting us and our friends and our families and our communities in different ways. And knowing that it's coming, that we can't avoid it, we all have an emotional threshold. Yeah. The more we can raise our awareness of what are we feeling, going back to your original comment, emotional intelligence, what am I feeling and why, and then how am I going to use it? But also the conversations that you talked about there or touched on for leaders around how are my teams feeling? And not just the throwaway, oh, I'm fine, Ian. It's the no more, like, how are you really doing? It's keeping that dialogue open so that we can be there and get back to the we that I talk about and cultivate, but how do we get that sense of community so that we can navigate this together. I think that's going to be the power of emotional intelligence, the NLP, and what we can bring to this conversation. But as you think about 2020, what do you hope that we all take away from this experience? One of the concepts I I, I picked up quite early on in my sort of development of, of leadership understanding was the notion of futurist thinking. Something I alluded to earlier on, we, we should have seen the the impact of COVID, you know, um, in the context of my work, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, everything was fine. Yeah, it's over there. Thursday, the whole company changed overnight. You know, mm-hmm. we should have seen it coming. Okay. So I, I, I believe this element of futurist thinking, but what does that mean in practice? Well, if, if I can sort of um, illustrate this sort of on screen, if this is our life now, mm-hmm. personal, domestic, corporate, this is, this is how we live our life now. Now, many of the things that we have talked about, that corporate leaders are talking about, um, sage leaders, elders, and so forth. There's a different world up here. 
different level. Okay. Okay. So I think for us, the challenge, if this is where we are, the big questions that need to be asked is, well, how do we get up to this level? What changes need to happen? In a corporate context, if we continue this level of experience, level of working, level of investment, level of um, relationships, we cannot get up to this newer, better, effective, efficient, balanced um, experience. I don't think everybody is equipped to think in that way. How do I get from here to here? Um, there are people who are futurist orientated, but not everybody. And I, I, I think we will begin to see those individuals emerge because we can't continue the way we are. We have to make changes. Um, and a practical aspiration I, I have is that whether in the context of families, the context of work, context of organizations, individuals, corporate leaders will begin to gather around them a group of people who are futurist, futurist orientated and can make the change, make the, mm -hmm. this is where we want to go. Because um, otherwise we get stuck in, in the whole notion of thinking new, doing old. That's not going to cut it. We need to think new and do new. Um, but we need to lead people in that direction. So that's my aspiration for 2021. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing and I appreciate your mentorship through the journey of Cultivate. I'll let you into a secret. We're working on the sequel, The Ally Mindset. So expect uh, some invitations to provide your valuable input as we get the manuscript honed and uh, bring that to market next year. But Ian, in the meantime, I wish you ongoing success and importantly, health. And thank, thank you for you taking time to share your leadership journey here at People First. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Nice to see you again. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.